Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to the Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpott. I'm here to ask the questions that you'll perhaps be scared to ask and keep Jonathan on his toes. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. This week, we're talking about why organisations get procurement wrong, and there are plenty of examples out there. So every company has to buy things, whether we're buying people or raw materials or services, and some companies have organised themselves, so buying is quite a strategic thing. For others, it's still quite reactive and tactical. A lot of organisations get this really, really well and do this really, really well. However, many get it very wrong. And today we're asking why. So to help me, let me introduce somebody who is an expert on how and why companies get procurement wrong. With over 35 years experience in procurement and supply chain as a procurement director, consultant, analyst and writer, he is recognised as one of the UK's leading experts in public and private sector procurement performance improvement. He holds an MA in mathematics from Cambridge University and is a fellow and past president of SIPS. He's the managing director of Procurement Excellence Limited and has just published a new book entitled Bad Buying. And we're very excited to have him here on the Procurement Show today. He is the legend that is Peter Smith. Peter, hello. Welcome to the Procurement Show. It's great to have you here with us today. I'm delighted to be here. And after that big build up, I think I'll just let you do all the talking. So Bad Buying, your book, it's a brilliant read. It's also a very painful read because it's a book that tells the story of why companies need to be good at procurement through this series of incredible examples of where companies have got it very, very wrong. And there's some fantastic examples in there. We've got the UK government preparing for Brexit and issuing a ferry contract to a company that had no boats. We've got hundreds of KFC outlets having to close because they had run out of chicken. Can you believe that? (laughs) Um, That was after they switched their logistics provider to DHL. And of course, the infamous Berlin Brandenburg Airport, which was due to open in 2012 at a cost of 2.8 billion euros. It's only just opened nine years late. And the cost is... Um, Not entirely clear, but people are putting it at above 10 billion euros. Worse, it opened in the middle of a pandemic. So, Peter, why do organisations get buying so wrong? How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Let's start small. Yeah, I mean, as I was researching the book, and I used obviously my own experience, plus some research and stories from friends and ex-colleagues and so on, there really are so many different reasons. If I was going to sort of group them at a fairly high level, there's a bunch of stuff that comes about because people don't know what they're doing, frankly. They don't have the competence, the skills, the training, the experience, which is something we're all familiar with in procurement. And sometimes that's the procurement professionals, but very often it's other people in the business or indeed people who are doing the procurement but aren't professionally trained and qualified. Peter, Uh, it sounds to me like you're probably on the hit list of many a procurement manager, aren't you? (laughs) Well, interestingly, I was a bit worried about that when I decided to do the book. But I think, as I say, there aren't that many stories in the book where you can pin it purely on a procurement manager or procurement director. There are certainly some where 
the procurement team or function were involved and probably have to take some responsibility for that. But I say in many, many cases, there are multiple, <laughs> multiple parties who you might put some of the responsibility with. Can I ask then, looking at procurement in general, as a general rule, does it follow the old saying that if you pay more, you get a better outcome? Well, not necessarily, I think is the simple answer to that. I mean, that's a simple statement and there's quite a bit you can unpack from that. So I think one point is being absolutely sure you know what outcomes you want to get, which often isn't the case. And then there's the question of, well, you can pay more and get a better outcome or a better product in many cases, but do you really need it? So there are definitely cases where things have been over-specified, if you like, and there's questions about whether people had to pay so much for anything, really, whether it's an outsourcing program or buying physical goods or whatever. So, you know, really understanding what it is you're trying to buy and why is a great starting point. And actually, the first chapter in the book is about getting the requirements right, because when I was thinking about how to structure it, it sort of hit me that everything else I was writing about in terms of the procurement process, so negotiation and contract management and understanding the market and all that good stuff that Jonathan knows very well, you could do all of that brilliantly. But if you were buying the wrong thing to begin with, then you were screwed, basically. So we talk a lot in procurement about getting the business requirements right. And there's some really great examples of where it hasn't been right. But what actually do organisations need to do to be better at defining those requirements of the business at the outset? I think it is relating what you're buying back to the actual business requirements. And that sounds very easy and obvious, but it isn't always done. So, you know, if you think about big government contracts, what are you really trying to achieve when you outsource? Are you trying to save money? Are you trying to give the citizen a better service? Are you trying to deliver some new policy goal? And if you don't really think about that, it's easy to buy something that doesn't meet your needs. And that's sometimes linked with incentivization in the contract as well. That's another whole chapter in the book. Because what <laughs> what we all know, if we've been around procurement a while, is suppliers will do what you financially incentivize them to do. Mm. Sometimes there are other incentives as well, but financial is usually the main one. So but nothing focuses a supplier like a contract as well, I find. No, I can imagine. <laughs> well, yes. So, you know, if you incentivize them to do something, even if it's accidental, then don't be surprised if they do that. What about procurement capability? How does this translate into bad buying and how can we help our fellows in procurement to avoid these mistakes? Yeah, again, I say I don't think it's just procurement. Maybe we'll come back to this. There are lots of other people in the organisation tend to get involved, particularly when you're talking about spending large amounts of money. But I think, I mean, we sort of know what we should be training people to do. I mean, negotiation is a great example. We all know that organisations and people need to be good at negotiation, need to know what they're doing before we let them loose on a contract or on a supplier. But if you look at the average amount of training that even procurement professionals get in negotiation compared to what our lovely colleagues, partners, you know, whatever collaborators on the sales side get, I suspect we're still looking at four or five to one in terms of the ratio. I saw a study that put it at 10 to one, in fact, actually. And that's an incredible gap, 10 times Mm. the training if you're in the world of sales and account management. Incredible. And I think, you know, that makes me think about the rest of the organization, because when we look at suppliers in procurement, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that we own the suppliers. But of course, the suppliers are the organization's suppliers. And what they provide, the people in marketing and R&D and operations believe that they're responsible for that. 
So if we're talking about buying, we have to involve the other functions in the organization. So surely they have a part to play in some of the examples of bad buying, Peter. Oh, absolutely. I suspect if you went through, I don't know what, there are 100 case studies in the book, you know, you'd find people outside procurement involved in 80% of them at least. And in many cases, probably leading on it. And in some cases, it probably didn't go close to procurement at all. So people outside procurement are almost always involved at the specification stage. I mean, we don't decide what we're going to buy. That comes from a budget holder almost always. So they're involved at that stage. They're probably going to be involved in the discussions with the supplier and putting the contract together because they know or they think they know what they want. So they'll be involved in contract, SLAs, all that sort of thing. And then they'll almost certainly be more involved with the post-contract management of the supplier than the procurement team are. Not many procurement professionals do the day-to-day contract management once it's in place. And we all know, again, you can put a really good contract in place. You could do a brilliant procurement job. But if you mess up on the contract management, you'll get a bad result. Yeah, I was going to ask how important it was for companies to actually understand the market that they're buying from. And do you think there's a misplacement of education or a lack of education in certain scenarios? Yeah, I mean, there's some very different cases within that ranging from, I mean, I started my procurement life at Mars Confectionery. So we were big buyers of commodities like cocoa and vegetable oil and dairy products and so on. And it was before I joined Mars, but it wasn't long after Roundtree's had lost more than their total annual profit in their speculation on the cocoa market. So there's that sort of commodity market stuff that can go badly wrong. But I think there's also, in the public sector again, there's been an assumption sometimes that there will always be a market there. And this has come right from the political level, that if you put something out, you have a bright idea, and there's no market exists at the moment. You know, there isn't a single supplier who can do this work at the moment. But if we put it out there, you know, the wonderful private sector will mystically find some way of meeting our needs. And there's a couple of classics. The probation service is an interesting one where they had these, you know, very well-intentioned ideas about how to run the probation service totally differently and put it all out to the market. Let's outsource it all. And four or five years later, the whole thing had collapsed and they were back in-house again because there was no market there. And they just assumed that somebody, you know, probably Capita and Circo, as it usually is, would find a way of delivering this amazing new probation service, despite having no experience at all. And where do you think that kind of misnomer comes from, that in the public sector there is an assumption this stuff can happen? Because I guess, you know, some companies probably could actually tool up to do that stuff. But again, there's a whole different skill set required there to then build that collaborative relationship and figure out how you're going to do that. So is it just that the public sector is not equipped to do that? Or is it just something they shouldn't try in the first place? Well, I think in some cases like that, it does come down to naivety that comes from the political level. Well, naivety, or sometimes it is a bit of politics. You know, I think there's no doubt we went through a phase where the Conservative Party just believed the private sector was sort of inherently better than their civil servants, and they wanted to outsource as much as possible. I don't think they believe that now, to be fair to the Tories. So, and I think that naivety runs through some senior civil servants as well. So, and indeed in the private sector as well, there is a chapter in the book that's called, if I remember correctly, something like Believing the Supplier. And that's all about where (laughs) people swallowed the line, various lines from the supplier and got caught out. And that can be as simple as the software provider who tells you that, yes, of course, our software can do that. And then you install it and find that it doesn't. And I think one of the messages for that is things like piloting 
new programs, if you were talking about outsourcing again or government stuff, you know, doing pilot programs, testing stuff before you buy it, whether it's goods or services, taking up references. I mean, that's something that many companies aren't good at doing, companies and government. You know, just checking out when the supplier says they can do something. Have they done it for a few other people before? And can I talk to them and actually get that confirmed? The Procurement Show. Exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. The book is called Bad Buying. It's by Peter Smith. It's available through Penguin Business, and it is a great read. Could you just tell us one story? I was quite impressed with this one. It was an NHS story, actually, unfortunately. And it was a building services manager, again, not a procurement professional, who was letting a contract. And he did the tender properly, and he had evaluation criteria, and he asked the suppliers to bid on a number of different jobs, pieces of work that then would be called off over the contract. And a company won fair and square. There was different weightings for the different jobs. And then they discovered the company was actually run by his brother-in-law. And what he'd done was he'd given a very high weighting for certain pieces of work. No. Told his brother-in-law who'd then bid very low on that. So take a simple example. It's a bit like, you know, if it was painting a room, 80% weighting in the evaluation and his brother-in-law bid 50 quid. So got scored brilliantly on the evaluation. But actually the weightings were reversed from what they really were going to buy. So, of course, his brother-in-law was able to put in really high pricing on the jobs that actually would be required. So it would be like, I don't know, you know, repairing a wall, which they had lots of, was £10,000 instead of the £1,000 it should have been. That's incredible. So, brother-in-law won the competition fair and square, but only when they started using that firm did people start going, why are we paying £10,000 for repairing a wall? <laughs> but it was a clever way, I thought, of fiddling the end result of the tender process. And the idea of transparency in procurement, clearly people hadn't quite got that well, with an example. if I can add one little end bit to that story, the guy got fired, quite rightly, and the NHS organisation wanted to prosecute and the police actually said, because your policy statements weren't clear enough in terms of conflicts of interest in particular, we're not going to prosecute because you hadn't made it clear that giving contracts to your brother-in-law and not being transparent and so on was against policy. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. I'd like to just come back to that bit around the senior individuals, both in the public sector and the private sector. And I'm reminded of having dinner with a client that I was working with, and we were doing some procurement transformation, and the CEO wanted to come down and meet us. And I happened to sit next to him. And he said, OK, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm working with your procurement team to help develop capability. And he said, oh, yeah, procurement, that's the function that buys the pencils. Now, this was a big global organization, and this was the CEO, and his mindset, his view of procurement was they just buy stuff, nothing else. And the department had been really trying to say, look, what intervention can we bring to the supply base to try and help this company achieve its goals? But that only existed in procurement. Do you think that executive teams, that senior civil servants, senior individuals in private companies just don't get procurement? I think it's hugely variable now. In many cases, the simple answer to your question is yes. But in other cases, procurement functions and the best CPOs have made a lot of progress in the last 10, 20 years. 
And I think if you talk to a whole host of companies and some public sector organisations, there is now an appreciation that procurement can contribute to solving fundamental business problems. It can drive competitive advantage and revenue and profit. It can develop great collaborative relationships with with third parties who can, you know, really help drive the business forward. And okay, maybe we still put the contracts in place for the pencils, but you know, that's a tiny bit of what we do. But yeah, I mean, understanding is still at senior levels is still not nearly as good as it should be. And I think if I can be controversial for a moment, it's not like uh, you. (laughs) This is somewhere where SIPs has perhaps failed to some extent. And I partially blame for that. If you go back to my time, in SIPs, working with SIPs. We've built ourselves as a profession, and there's some positives with that, but the danger of that is we sort of put a wall around ourselves and say, you know, this is what we do. Keep out. If you haven't got the SIPs qualification, you shouldn't be doing this. Pass things over to us and we'll do our magic procurement stuff and come out at the other end with a jolly good contract. So that's fine. But the danger is that then the senior business people do see us as something sort of separate and almost divorced from the core important parts of the business. You know, we're just people, they throw something over the wall to do a particular process to it, and then they throw it back to the business who actually make it all work. I think you touch on a very important point. And what I see with the companies that we work with is that what they need for the procurement professionals of the future is very different to some of the traditional routes. You know, things are changing out there faster and faster. I've got a question to both of you if I may. I'm the type of person who will watch the news and hear and see live examples of these procurement errors playing out on the news channels. And I am literally screaming at the TV because even as an outsider, I can see these issues on the horizon. I know they're going to be met sooner or later. Where is the disconnect? Why does this happen? In particular, I suppose with reference to government-based procurement contracts, where does it start to go wrong? Why do you end up getting software companies getting contracts that they can't deliver upon or they make massive errors? My partner's a software developer, so I've got a bit of an inside knowledge there. But I'm surely not the only person in the general public who just buries their head in their hands and just screams, why? Why? I I don't think I scream at the TV as well. It's not a good thing, I think. But I mean, for me, there are four things. It's about people... It's about the systems that we implement in procurement because they're only just starting to get traction. It's about how we define what we want. And to do that, we've got to get close to our internal customers. Peter, as you said, the general public, if we're serving the public, the citizens, what is it that people need? And that's quite a hard thing to do sometimes to actually figure out what the real need is and what we should really be buying. And of course, we've got to understand the marketplace. So I think, you know, it's about people, it's about systems, requirements and market and being able to do that well. What do you think, Peter? I agree with all of that. I think there's some very fundamental issues in the public sector that go way beyond procurement, quite honestly, in terms of how money's spent. But I mean, just one example, your power and your grade and therefore your pay probably is measured in the civil service by how many people you've got working for you and how big your budget is. And to some extent, if you're a senior person and you've got a big software development project under you, why wouldn't you like that to cost a billion rather than a hundred million? Because if it's a billion, <laughs> you'll probably get promoted and you'll have a bigger team and you'll have more exposure to ministers and it's all jolly good for your career. And if you say it's a hundred million and then you overspend, you'll be in some trouble. So it's better to say it's a billion and you probably still overspend anyway. So a friend of mine, this isn't in the book actually, but he's working, I better not give a clue as to what the organisation is, but it's in the transport sector, let's say. 
And he went in as the first sort of head of procurement. This was an early stage project. And he he's a really good guy. And he was doing things to save money. And he was talking about, he was spending a lot of money on consultants at that stage, professional services. And he's talking to the chief executive and say, well, we, you know, we can do this, we can do this and save a lot of money because the budget's quite tight. And the chief executive said, I don't give a damn about the budget. If I need more money, I'm very close to the minister. He really wants this to happen. If I go back and I say, look, our budget for this year is 100 million, we need 200 million, he'll give me it. So I don't give a damn about the cost, quite honestly. That's incredible. Uh, but my friend left. I mean, he was... Yeah an interim and he said I can't you know I can't work like this there's no point having me here and so, I don't think those stories are unique to the UK I hear similar stories in the US with the US government you know this is a global thing in the public sector I think mm-hmm. so one piece of advice then that you could give to put everything in procurement that's wrong right what would it be well if I was talking to a procurement head let's say I think the thing we have touched on which is Look on procurement as an organisational capability, not a functional capability. So the last chapter in my book, having told all the terrible stories, and I mean, we haven't even talked about fraud. There's a whole section on fraud yeah. and there's great stuff there. But the last section of the book, I try and give sort of 10 suggestions for making things better. And a lot of them would be very standard for procurement people. But the one I think I felt strongest about was that one around the organisational capability, which means it's not just about the 20 or 200 people in procurement. It is about educating your senior management your budget holders, your specifiers, your contract management, because if they all understand what we're trying to do and what we're trying to get out of suppliers and contracts, then you stand a whole lot better chance of avoiding bad buying. The book is called Bad Buying. It's by Peter Smith. It's available through Penguin Business, and it is a great read, but you will cringe when you read some of these things, but you'll learn a lot as well. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking the greatest insights. What an amazing chap. He is a legend. He really is. In this entire industry, he's done so much good work. I found it most interesting to hear all the name checks. Yeah. Some very big firms have made some very big mistakes and he's not scared to name and shame. He's bold. He's checked his facts. And these are all correct stuff. You know, these are all things that have happened. And if you read his book, he names a lot of companies that have got it very wrong. This is all in the public domain. Mm -hmm. He's rounded it up and put it in one place. It makes compelling reading. I was going to say, I think he should be an investigative journalist. Uh, Yeah, he could be. It's time to Ask Jonathan. And this week's Ask Jonathan is from Sebastian Alonso, who has emailed us to ask you. I hope you're ready for this, Jonathan. I'm ready. I understand the importance of defining good business requirements before going out to market to source something. However, I'm finding this very difficult. When I ask my stakeholders what they need... They tend to have strong views and reject any suggestions that we might have and be able to get more from the suppliers if we do things differently. This question could not have been more perfect for today's podcast. So what you're touching on there, Sebastian, is one of the biggest challenges we have as procurement people, which is actually figuring out what the real business need was. We heard Peter talk about it earlier on, and this is probably key because if we can define our business requirements and be really clear about what the business needs is, that underpins everything that we do. The problem is when we engage with stakeholders, they may well 
view procurement as simply there to do what they're told, to go and buy what it is the stakeholders are requiring, that procurement is a responsive function. But of course, if we're going to add value to the organization, then we need to be a bit more strategic. So we need to be thinking, how can we add value to what the organization is trying to do and that starts with getting the requirements right so we need to be able to challenge our stakeholders so when we ask what is it you need for a particular area of spend then we need to be able to question why now let me give you an example i've worked a lot in the healthcare sector and one of the biggest places where this happens is in the purchase of surgical gloves there are 30, 40, 50 different types of surgical glove. If you ask the clinicians, the physicians, the nurses, the medical staff, what do you need from the gloves? They will say, I need this brand. And in the vast majority of cases, it really doesn't matter. There may be some preferences for latex versus PVC, maybe some reasons why you want one over the other. So you can get a very simple specification. But what often happens is the people who are trained in the medical world, they learn when they go to kind of surgeon school and they get trained using a particular type of glove. So they then say, this is the glove I'm going to work with. And they will argue if they don't have that brand that they won't be able to do their job and that could affect how they deliver clinical care. So in some cases, in a very small number of cases, that is true. But in many cases, actually the brand of glove really doesn't matter. It's about getting the right specification for the purpose. And that means we've got a challenge. We've got to be able to say, so why is it that you need that? In what way is that essential to you? And people will get a little bit upset when we challenge. There'll be conflict there when we're questioning why our stakeholders need something. But that's what we need to do if we're going to be good at procurement. We need to question. And there's a great technique we can use here called the five whys. This is what children do. Well, why? Why? And you just keep asking why. Do you get to the real reason? Now, you can dress it up a bit and you don't have to say why. You can say, and how does it do that? And why do we need it to be like that? The point is you keep asking to get to the real need. And often it's a personal preference that people are expressing because that's what they want, not what the business needs. So, Sebastian, my advice to you is don't be afraid to upset people. That is part of what you have to do in procurement. And you need a little bit of challenge and conflict if you're to really get behind what the business is telling you and find that breakthrough opportunity to buy things differently. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us. On LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show and on Twitter at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. Brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing, all rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.